Infirmary Media. Art. People engage to stop a jewel in decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet in sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history, we just fight for it. I am Mark James and welcome back to Dueling Decades. This week, duelers, we bring you the week experience as I will be competing with May 8th through the 14th of 1966 against these men. First off, Getting down with May 8th through the 14th, but of 1977, say hello to Man Crush. What's up? Let's do this. It's 1977. Shit is hard to find, but I got to pick for every round. So let's, uh, let's go. Let's do it. Also joining us on the panel this week is the host of the One Headlight 90s podcast. Please welcome back to the show, Dueling with 82, it's Drew Zachman. What's up, guys? It's Drew. I have May 9th to May 15th of 1982, and uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to win again. So <laughs> glad I'm glad to be here. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So this week's celebrity guest judge is a world-traveled classic car enthusiast and TV icon, who is perhaps best known for his role as child werewolf Eddie Munster on the 60s hit television series, The Munsters. Please welcome to the show, Judge Butch Patrick. (laughs) The judge, like the sound of that, the Honorable Butch Patrick. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Where's your gavel? Let me go get my robe. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. All right, duelers, get ready for another monster episode of Dueling Decades. All right, let's toss it right down to our special guest judge, Butch Patrick, for the official toss-off. Did you say monster or monster? Monster. Oh, but it should have been monster. It's a monster. <laughs> <episode>. Monster. <laughs> All right, so it's Drew and I for the see who goes first. Drew, why don't you call it in the air for the toss? Tails. Tails, 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 tails. It is tails. Yeah. All right. Drew Zachman, you take control of the board and get to select this week's first category. Where are we going first, man? All right, I, I won something already. Uh, that's pretty uh, awesome. <laughs> Quit while you're ahead. I, should, I know. I was just about to say, maybe I should he stop. He just drops off um, the call. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go with uh, let me do let me start with TV. I feel like that's probably my weakest category here. So, um, I'll tell you what, guys. There's one thing you might not like, and that is me when I'm angry. Uh, well, they in fact made some other people mad on May 12th, 1982, when they canceled 
the Incredible Hulk TV show. So the show ran from 1977 to 1982, May 12th, 1982. And uh, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty cool show. I, I remember watching reruns of that when I was younger and uh, it was pretty awesome. You had two of our favorite lead characters, right? You had Dr. Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk, Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno teaming up for that amazing show. Uh, I, I watched it quite a bit. Um, the awesome sound effects, you know, when he would change into uh, the Hulk. It, it was just like the action sequences were awesome. Just a fantastic show. But uh, unfortunately, on May 12th, 1982, it's a sad day because they, in fact, canceled the Incredible Hulk TV show. Uh-huh. I think they did okay afterwards, though. So uh, I think the Hulk uh, and Marvel in general, I think they made out just fine. Interesting. Interesting. What do you have, Man Crush, for the TV round? All right, so um, May 14th, 1977, Stanley Cup Final, Boston Garden. Jacques Lemaire scores two goals, and Montreal Canadiens edge the Boston Bruins 2-1, to one, no T, 4-4 game sweep. No, fuck that. I'm not doing that again. I did hockey like two <laughs> weeks ago. I'm not doing it again. Uh, no, for real, May 12th, 1977. It, 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 this was an odd week, and I was prepared to get some good like season finales, but all I found were like repeats and debuts of two shows, one of which was about a bunch of crazy people in a mental hospital called Mix Nuts that only lasted one episode. <laughs> totally what? would not have flown tonight. So that obviously is not my pick. But then I found another debut. That Thursday night at 1130 p.m., you could take a trip inside one of the coolest places in the world, especially in 1977, because this was the premiere episode of Playboy's Playmate Party. Uh, This was touted as a worldwide special at the time. And if you think about it, there really wasn't much in the way of cable in 1977 or people just couldn't afford it. So when you had the opportunity to watch Playboy on TV, you were fucking tuned in. You know, I mean, realize this, like you Hefner, he seized the opportunity like five years later because then he began the Playboy channel on its own. Right. But let's get back to the show here. Hef brought in the most recent Playboy centerfolds from the last 12 months of 1977 into 76. And he was going to name the 1977 Playboy Playmate of the Year, which went on to be Patty McGuire. And not only did she win that coveted distinction, but she also won $25,000 and a brand new car. It was like being on fucking like Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, but who did she marry? I don't know. Who did she marry? Do you know Jimmy this one? Connors. Oh, he, she did pretty well for herself then. She he did. was not at this party, though. <laughs> this, But this party had some people on it. In this episode, you had James Kahn, Bill Cosby. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully he was behaving himself back then. <laughs> yeah, he was the bartender handing out the drinks. <laughs> yeah, hope not. I remember that. <laughs> you had Jay, a very young Jay Leno doing his stand-up at this. You had Dick Martin. He was the host. And Arnold Schwarzenegger was also there amongst all these playmates. But that's what I went with. It was the Playboy Playmate Party, which uh-huh. went on May 12th, 1977 at 11.30 p.m. What do you have, Mark? All right. So for my television pick, I just want to preface this with once again reminding our audience, dates and judges are picked way in advance for this show. So, with that being said, May 12th, 1966, I bring you an episode of a TV show, which also happens to be the finale of this TV show. 
This episode was called A Visit from the Teacher. This is the season finale, series finale of The Monsters. Yes, that's served. Yes, it was. Number 70. Eddie writes a school paper to his parents about the life around the Munster home. His teacher and principal think that what he has written is the product of an overactive imagination. I can definitely relate to that. I'm not even going to go into detail on this pick because I'm going to toss it right down to our judge, Butch Patrick. (laughs) What do you remember about this awesome episode? Uh, I remember that I was looking past the pages to go home. (laughs) (laughs) I was going, yeah, these velvet shorts were getting a little too tight, if you know what I mean. Uh. Actually, the we were kind of sad. Everybody knew it was coming. Batman had been beating the beating the crap out of us in the ratings. Fred Gwynn and Al Lewis were from New York. They were prepared to go home. The scripts were not too strong. They were feuding with the front office. Um, everybody was pretty happy. Back in the day, two-year series were very common, two to three years. Star Trek, Gilligan's Island, a lot of popular shows had short runs. We did a lot of episodes per year. So uh, even though we didn't make the pinnacle mark of 100 episodes to go into syndication, we did really well with only 70. But what we did do, instead of going into a third season, they had a very strategic business move in mind. They made a movie, Munster Go Home. And the movie was done in color because that was the big rage. Everything was going from black and white to color. And they didn't know whether to go to a third season with the Munsters because of the cost of going into color. So they canned the show but they made a color feature and that feature was released around the world to introduce all the other countries to the Munsters so they could then sell them the package for the series, the syndication package. Now, an interesting thing that you early on when you were talking about the incredible Hulk, you know, the uh, six degrees of separation in Hollywood, the uh, Kevin Bacon thing. It's funny because I am good friends with Lou Ferrigno and he was green. Eddie Munster was green. (laughs) And I did, an episode of my favorite Martian and we all know who was on my favorite Martian, Bill Bixby, his first series. <laughs> it all comes around. His first yeah, series was Ray Walston. So um, it was pretty funny. Bill was a very busy guy. He did like five series. He did the magician. He did my favorite Martian. He did the Hulk. He did a couple other ones. Uh, my portrait of Betty's father, very busy guy and a hell of a nice man, man, a busy dude. He was a busy dude. I mean, obviously, we we know where this is going to go, but we got to give you the judgment <laughs> of this round. Which year takes it for the television round? Uh, well, I can't say 66, but uh, even though I think the TV was... Yeah, you know, I'm going to go with 66, and I'll tell you why. It was a very pivotal year because it was the transition year from black and white to color. And the 60s was such a dominant decade for family values and, and fun, non-believable, although the Hulk was pretty non-believable. But back in the 60s, they had shows like Mr. Ed and My Favorite Martian and uh, Bewitched and I Dream of Genie and The Munsters and, you know, all these great shows that were there for just uh, comedy's sake. So I'm going to stay with the 60s in comedy as the winner of this particular round. That is so weird though that you got that because we picked these <laughs> when i picked these dates i picked these dates like two months beforehand yeah which only confirmed to come on on like thursday so this right. isn't like planned that's no no that's not at all no, just this happenstance and i happen to be wearing my monster's hat <laughs> and that's why <laughs> all right mark you have control of the board 
All right, so I take a one-point lead and control the board. And you know what, Man Crush? We're going to keep the weirdness going. Let's go to the movies round. All right. We don't often do movies this early in the game, but you know what? I got a good feeling about this one. So I went over to our good friends at newspapers.com because, of course, we always dig through actual newspapers to get all of our information here for the show. So I went to the Quad City Times in Davenport, Iowa, in a newspaper dated May 13th, 1966. And there's an article here written by Charles Whitbeck, and he writes the headline, Munsters Make a Color Movie. Are you kidding me? Oddly enough, what Butch was just talking about, Munsters Go Home, this is an article about the filming of that movie. While they were on set filming, of course, the movie didn't get released till later in that summer, but this goes on to talk about the production of the film and how it's going to be in color and basically everything Butch just told you. (laughs) So that is my pick for the movies round. I found a news article about the production and making of this film. Unbelievable. <laughs> so not an actual release date, but you came with the news story for it, which is right. still a deep dig. It is. And to make everything go full circle, this movie features the Dragula, which we talked about last week when I picked Rob Zombie. Monsters Go Home is actually Rob Zombie's favorite movie. And the reason he wanted the Dragula in the Dragula video, which I told all you guys wasn't the Dragula, it was just a regular Munsters mobile, because he couldn't get the Dragula because it was on tour. Now, Butch, did you have the Dragula at that time, and did you prevent Rob Zombie from getting it? <laughs> Funny thing that we're talking about this movie, uh, the Munster Go Home just came out on Blu-ray. Munsters Go Home. Yes. Rob Rob and I sat uh, in right before Christmas uh, in a booth uh, next to each other, doing live commentary, just kind of like we're doing now, about the movie for 90 minutes, which was a real treat because I'm a big Rob Zombie fan. I had met him about 20 years ago. but um, So we did the commentary, had a good time. The um, the Munster coach, not the mobile, the Munster coach, was also in right. Munster Go Home. But the Dragula, the one that they used, they Herman was driving it. So the original Dragula had a canopy on it when we went to the drag strip. This one, obviously, Herman couldn't sit in it with a canopy, so they took the canopy off and put a roll bar on it, and they made it the Munster Go Home version. And by the way, I have a Munster coach, and I have a Dragula with the Munster Go Home version as well. So, no, I did not have it. I was too young, but uh, but it is it is, it, it is a small world that um, the Munster Go Home Blu-ray just came out. Shout Factory put it together. They used to, uh, I guess, Rhino Records used to be the company that is now called Shout Factory. And I did it with Rob Zombie, so I'm really honored. It was it's a, it's cool. It was fun. It was fun watching it with him. That is pretty damn awesome. Well, you know what? That is really awesome. Let me go next then, because like mine yeah. will tie into that too, which is yeah. even more bizarre. Uh, so I'm 11 years later, Mar- or May 13th, 1977, and let me just start by saying this. Mark mentioned a little bit before, but mostly like the internet movie release dates for anything beyond 1980 seems to be a bit wonky on the internet itself. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting the feeling because unlike today or even like 20 years ago, there were far fewer screens available. And that said, I think a lot of these movies were somewhat regional releases. Then, you know, maybe things would start out in a theater, you know, on the West coast. And then as movies would move out of the theater, they would move in. So like the dates are kind of all over the place. So I went to the LA times. I found my movie that was released 
on Friday the 13th, May of 77. And this is years before Christine or The Wraith. We get this movie in 1977 that featured James Rowland and a homicidal car. (laughs) Yes. The homicidal vehicle was completely customized in 1971. (laughs) Lincoln Continental Mark III, which was built by George Barris, the same guy that built the Batmobile. The car Butch knows very well, the monster coach. Mm -hmm. And I think he also built Dragula as well. I mean, that... It's crazy how that all tied together. We didn't talk to one another, but the, this movie, it begins off with this car just killing two people riding their bikes for utterly no reason. And then he goes and kills <laughs> he, the car kills a hitchhiker for no reason. It's, it's a pretty simple story. It's a car that kills people and spoiler alert. There appears to be no driver of said car. And it's just like, you don't know if it's supernatural or not. I'm just not sure because they don't tell you. Uh, They don't explain any of this. But the best description I found online of this movie, and it really made sense, it's Jaws on Wheels. There you go. That sums it up perfectly. (laughs) Because you don't know. You you literally don't know. The weird thing about this movie, though, it's not weird, but it's a bad coincidence for them. It's literally two weeks away from Star Wars taking the world by storm. So when I drew 1977, I was like, this is going to be a feast or famine as far as movies go, because remember all those screens I was just talking about a little bit earlier, guess what they were showing in two weeks? And all of them were showing this. Every available screen was showing Star Wars. So this didn't have a big box office haul, but it was more of like your drive-in classic. Yeah. And why not? It's the car, like Butch said before, May 13th, 1977. And it's just nuts how all those tied together. If I could, if I could tell you what's interesting, um, the Munsters was a real popular show for a lot of reasons, but a big factor that we had going on were the George Barris cars. Um, they were the coolest hot rods. I mean, yeah, he had the cars that were on Sunset Strip, but they weren't like an everyday family vehicle. Like we like this, like a lot of times when I go to car dealerships, they'll do a thing where come out and see the original minivan, the Munster coach, you know, you can put nine <laughs> people in the sucker. <laughs> and and uh, the, what, what I used to really enjoy was whenever I would see a script and the, I would notice the Munster coach was going to be utilized. It meant two things. Number one, we would be outside because they never fired that car up inside the soundstage. And number two, I usually would be sitting up in the back in the best seat in the house, uh, cruising around in the Munster coach, which for a kid, you're at home building the model and they actually be sitting in the real deal and getting to know George Barris. And we were friends from that point on. I knew him until he passed away a few years ago. Um, I used to really, one of my, one of my treats on Wednesday afternoon when I had a long lunch, a 90 minute lunch was to go to the slot car track to pick up my slot car stuff. That was big in the sixties and then go by Georgia shop to see what he was up to. And while I used to do that, I would see Sonny and Cher picking up their uh, Mustangs. You see Elvis checking out his Cadillac or Sinatra getting his studs. And everybody in Hollywood of a who's who had to have a George Barris custom car. I mean, it was just it was just a status symbol. So, yeah, he was doing the custom cars for the TV show. But he was really in the 50s. He was doing the best chopped Mercs ever. And then in the 60s, he started doing movie star cars and then the TV cars. So the guy was just way ahead of the curve. Oh my God. He was like West coast customs. Yeah. 40 years before him. Yeah, an, an early, uh, uh, Jesse James, but better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so wild. Man. That's a great story. Yeah. All right. Thanks. So let's finish this round up. What do you, ha- what do you have drew? Yeah. Mine doesn't tie into anybody. Oh, then um, you suck, man. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. This is why I never win. Um, 
So uh, right the other right the other day right my oldest daughter and I were putting a puzzle together like a this Moana and Maui puzzle and about halfway through she looks at me and and she goes Dad what's what's life all about and I was like holy geez like what are you talking about and you know with like with everything that's like you know I wasn't expecting that to come from a, a six year old and you know with all that's going on now right you know with COVID and everything else and 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 also I just had a big milestone birthday. So I feel like those thoughts have been kind of like going through my head kind of a bit more of recent. So luckily then for me, I, you know, since I have been giving it some thought, I kind of had an answer prepared for her. And, and I think kind of what I drilled down to was, you know, life's all about crushing your enemies, seeing them <laughs> driven before you and hearing the lamentations of their women. And of course I am talking about Conan the Barbarian, which came out on May 14th. 1982 uh this was arnold's first movie so it, he introduced us to the world of, of arnold schwarzenegger so uh and arnold himself said conan was his biggest opportunity to establish uh himself in the entertainment industry and uh establish himself he did and for that i'm always gonna be thankful for this movie and to uh, edward summer and edward r pressman who wound up casting arnold because uh, they actually had uh, tossed around Charles Bronson and Sylvester Stallone, but I think if you, uh, it's it's got to be Arnold. The guy's just like to. jacked yeah. up out of his mind. He is Conan, and uh, personally, I'm a huge Arnold fan. I've seen, uh, if not all of his movies, just about most of them, and I watch a lot of them with my dad. So you know, I'm always going to appreciate his movies. You know, just great memories. Um, and uh, James Earl Jones was also in this movie, and uh, Sam Bergman. Oh yeah, uh, Max von Sydow had a role oh, yeah. there too. So, um, good movie, good cast, and uh, had a budget of twenty million. Pulled in, I uh, couldn't drill down the actual number, but it said between sixty-nine to seventy-nine million at the box office. So, Conan the Barbarian gave us uh, the great Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, that is my pick. Cool. Let's hear from our judge, Butch Patrick, on who wins the movies round. Uh, I'm gonna go with Conan. I like it. Yeah. I like it. It was, you know, Arnold broke in. They actually did a documentary uh, called Pumping Iron yep. that he was prominently displayed in. And that pretty much, um, the, but but uh, Conan was the first real role for him to establish himself as a, you know, carry, being able yep. to carry a movie on his shoulders. And then Will, and Will Chamberlain did a really good job, which uh, it was an interesting mix. It really was. It was well thought out. I'm sure it storyboarded really well. And it was a little bit, you know, like a comic book thing, but it was, another thing was also like Muscle Beach at the same time. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yep. In, in a prehistoric, sort of like a semi-prehistoric setting. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but that's like the best description ever of that film. <laughs> she was, Sandalberg wasn't quite Raquel Welsh in 1 million BC, but she was pretty damn good. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, yes, I will go with, I will go with uh, Conan. All right. All right, Drew Zachman, you pick up a point and take control of the board. What category are we going with next? Oh, well, I'm not getting shut out, so that that makes me happy. <laughs> uh, all right, so I'm gonna go. With, I'm gonna switch over to news, and I am going with uh, May 12th of 1982. Uh, the USFL forms. So uh, people love football, and New Orleans businessman David Dixon figured people would like to watch a league that plays in the summer when the NFL and college football are in their off season. Uh, turns out, guess what, guys? There's baseball. 
So, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, you know, this league differed a bit from the NFL and that, it, you know, the teams didn't have a salary cap. They had kind of like their own rules, but teams could spend money. Uh, and some of them spent money like it was going out of style. And sure enough, it did, in fact, go out of style. And one thing they did was to try to lure away some of the top college players uh, going to the NFL due to some of the crazy contracts, one of which was Herschel Walker. Um, but while so the league actually ran from uh, 1983 until 1986 and while it was short-lived they uh, certainly did not have a shortage of some star players or like I said they had Herschel Walker Bobby A. Bear Jim Kelly Reggie White Steve Young Gary Zimmerman Doug Williams they actually uh, poached uh, Brian Sipe away from the Browns Uh, Marv Levy coached uh, in the USFL and uh, also Donald Trump 45th president was the owner of the New Jersey Generals from 1984 to 1985. And this was actually one thing I didn't know. I'm a, a big sports nerd, and this is one thing I did not know, which kind of blew my mind because I was a huge Dan Marino fan growing up. They actually, in 1983, they actually drew, tried to draft Dan Marino. The Los Angeles Express did, but Marino obviously declined, wound up going in the first round to the Miami Dolphins in the actual NFL draft. But the first overall picks in the league were Dan Marino in 83, Mike Rozier in 84 by the Pittsburgh Maulers, Jerry Rice in 1985 by the Birmingham Stallions. He obviously, like Marino, declined, went to the NFL for the Niners. And then Mike Haight in 1986 by the Orlando Renegades, but that, uh, that never came to fruition. Uh, and Haight wound up actually playing for the Jets. And, and also of those, <laughs> Mike Rozier was actually the only one who actually played in the USFL. So... Uh, that's my pick for news. May 12th, 1982, the USFL forms. All right. So for my news story, we're going to head over to the San Francisco Examiner in a newspaper dated May 13th, 1966, where I found an article that says UCLA reaps star harvest. And we're going to continue on the trend that Drew started talking about football because this article goes on to talk about the recruiting class for UCLA. Now, I went through and I read the article. No real notable names in that that recruiting class for UCLA, but they do talk about the rival of UCLA, USC, at the end. It says Bruins Conference neighbor USC also made some prize catches in football with junior college All-American O.J. Simpson of City College of San Francisco and Marvin Motley of Long Beach, plus Mike Holmgren, a 6'4 quarterback, who directed Lincoln to the top San Francisco championship. So Mike Holmgren. No shit. And a little known player named OJ Simpson signs with USC. Now, also in the article, it talks about Stanford uh, drafting a highly touted uh, quarterback by the name of Mr. John Jim Elway. Plunkett. Oh, uh, okay. So Jim Plunkett, again, borderline Hall of Famer. The debate on that one continues. But OJ Simpson and Mike Holmgren sign with USC. That's what I have for the news round. Man Crush, over to you. All right. Well, at least I know I won't get shut out this game. So we got uh, (laughs) May 13th, 1977, a little station called WRNW is a classic rock station in Briarcliff Manor, New York. And they took a chance and they put this guy on the air for the first time for his first commercial broadcast. This man is still on the radio today. I'm not even going to go oh too deep God, in this. Howard Stern. <laughs> That's right. He's had his own TV show. He's <laughs> He's been on other people's TV shows. He's had his own book. He's had his own movie. He's the self-proclaimed 
king of all media. And let me just play you this short clip from 1977. This was after they promoted him because he was such a diligent worker that they made him the program director at WRNW after like a couple months. But listen to him here, and I'll send you this clip, Mark, so you can put it in, but just so you guys can hear. He sounds exactly like he does today. Hi, I'm Howard Stern, the program director of Westchester's Rock Station. You know, it's really hard to describe what makes a radio station a success. We here at WRNW have narrowed it down to a very few special elements. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds just like him. That's Pretty crazy. Low. I mean, real short, 43 years later, this guy is yep. still the king of all media. And that all began Briarcliff Manor, New York on WRNW, May 13th, 1977. All right, let's go down to Judge Butch Patrick. I was waiting because the first two were kind of weak, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. The USFL thing was kind of interesting. Uh, Steve Young, I remember, was the highest-paid quarterback ever. They, I think they paid him like $40 million. So yeah, over no like contract. 30 years or something. Yeah. Crazy over-the-top thing. It, fell apart. it was nuts. He was like the happiest guy. Three years later, he's out of there, and he's got you know $40 million. And they're, you know back then, when that's $100 million today. But um, I'm going to go with – man crush with Howard Stern. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, number one, Al Lewis, Grandpa Munster, was on the Howard Stern show all the time in New York City. I really enjoyed private parts of the movie, watching his his climb to fame and what he did and how he did it. Uh, I've been on his show several times. He's a great guy. Happens to love the Munsters. Huge Munsters fan. Him and Rob Zombie will sit there all day long and try to play Munsters trivia and outsmart each other. So... <laughs> They uh, they happen to really enjoy the show. I've been on the show a couple times. He is an amazing guy. He's nothing like the persona that got him there. I mean, he literally loves his guests. He's very polite. He's very um, um, warm, and he flips the switch, and he becomes the shock jock that got him where he is. The first time I did the show, I was listening to him on the radio going up there, and he's just being brutal, and I'm, like, scared to go on the air with this guy. <laughs> so I get, in, I get in the room, and – he uh, asked me a question. He goes, hey, Butch, what kind of car are you driving? I go, why? And he goes, I'm just going to do a tire commercial. Relax. I'm not coming after you. So I looked over at Robin. I had never seen neither one of them. I only heard him on the air. And I looked over to Robin, and she's in the booth over there. And, he, and I look back at him, and I look over there, and he goes, he goes, what, you didn't know she was black? <laughs> <laughs> I go, Howard. <laughs> and I go, oh, my God. And so that was my – that was my first Howard Stern, uh, Howard Stern experience was finding out that Robin was an Afro-American. Oh, my God. <laughs> what year was that? It had to be like early 80s? Oh, or? this was like, uh, oh, God, Grandpa's Restaurant had just opened. So it must have been about 19, uh, maybe mid-80s, oh, 83, wild. 84. Wow. It was hilarious. And then we're still friends. So, you know, he'll take my call. And uh, But he's a good guy. And uh, he's uh, an, an amazing talent. Uh, then, and when he signed that serious uh, contract, who would have thought serious would be successful enough to pay him a hundred million dollars? Yep. Yeah. And yeah. then did it again. And they had to like, and did him- it again. Yeah. I mean, he, 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 uh, he proved himself to be very worthy. And he turned it into like such a con, like, what does he record? Like three days a week now? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you something funny about these radio guys in, in Buffalo. There's a, there's a station called 97 rock and, a friend of mine is on it up there. And whenever I go to Buffalo, I go in. So I go in the other day to go visit him. And I go, so where's Martin? And they go, yeah, he's on the air. I go, where? He goes, from his living room in Florida. 
That's the amazing part nobody now. Nobody in Buffalo knows that. That is the best. Like, all their stuff so is he pre-recorded. Failed, he failed on the Buffalo winners to get went to Florida, but didn't bother telling his listeners. That's okay. They don't need to know. I know. All right, man, Crush. You tie up the game at three apiece, heading into the first two-point round. And you take control of the board. What category are we going with next? All right. I want to wrap up with hot products. So let's go music for the first two-point round. And we're going, like, every one of my picks so far, Butch has guessed before I've even finished. So let's <laughs> oh, see if he gets Actually, no, no, no. This one, I don't even think I, I need to beat around the bush too much on it. But it's uh, May 14th, 1977. Uh, let's see. Like, maybe you will. We got the, the release of this band's second album, and it's less than two years removed from their successful debut album. These ladies followed it up with arguably their best. Uh, I would say of their 16 studio albums, this album includes the most popular song in their entire catalog, and it was also the first song on this album. Eagles? No, it's not the Eagles. I thought you were going to get it, but I'm not going to beat around the bush. Uh, my sister was a huge fan of this band. It was Heart. Uh, so okay. I was... It was hard. I was very accustomed to hearing that killer riff from the beginning of Barracuda. Oh, yeah. All the time. That's one of the greats. Oh, it's best. I mean, and it's it's so identifiable that there's over 160 million plays on Spotify for this song to prove it. It's their number one song, obviously. I mean, they have other great songs as well, but this one's, they use it all the time. It's on all kinds of TV series. They use it in movies and stuff. Uh, but the album Little Queen, it did go on to be three times platinum, and it featured two other singles. You had Kick It Out and Little Queen were on this one. But the story behind Barracuda is pretty crazy if you don't know it. For those of you that know Hart, or don't know Hart, rather, Nancy Wilson and Ann Wilson are sisters. After the debut came out, which is Dreamboat Annie, it hit platinum, and their first record label was Mushroom Records. They took out a full-page ad in the trades that looked like it was ripped from a, from a tabloid. And the top, I have a picture of it right here. It says, The National Informer. And then it says, Exclusive, The Heartbreaking Story. With a picture of the sisters sitting back-to-back. Where they, I, they must be like in tube tops or something. But the way that they cut this picture, it looks like they're both topless. So underneath that, it says, Hart's Wilson sisters confess... It was only our first time. So Mushroom Records puts this thing out, this scandalous ad that makes it look like there are a couple like incestual lesbians, okay, on this thing. And it 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 completely pissed them off. So in spite of this ad, they happened to be playing a show in Detroit, and a Detroit promoter asked Ann Wilson how her lover was doing. And initially she thought he was talking about her then boyfriend at the time was Michael Fisher, who was also in Heart. But then the promoter was like, no, 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 I'm talking about your sister, Nancy. And she got so pissed off that she stormed out, went to her hotel room, and she wrote Barracuda, which is a song that compared the music business to the fish. Which is, yeah. It's fucking wild. I'll, I'll post this picture on our Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades. We'll do it later in the week when this episode comes out. But yeah, wild stuff. May 14th, Little Queen from Heart was released. Cool. All right. So for my music pick... May of 1966 was an absolutely legendary month for music releases. On May 6th, you had Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones. May 16th, we got Pet Sounds from the Beach Boys. 
also on May 16th, Blonde on Blonde from Bob Dylan. End of the month, we got Paperback Writer from the Beatles. All these great albums and singles released in May. Oddly enough, I don't own any of them on vinyl. But I do own one album that was released in May of 1966. May 9th of 1966. I give you the great album. What Now, My Love by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I actually own this. And not only do I own it, let me take it out of the sleeves here, making great radio here. This is a import bootleg from China on clear-through orange vinyl uh, from 1966. Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. This album remained number one on the Billboard album charts for an astonishing nine weeks. Actually, the longest of any album released by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. This album, they stopped playing a lot of Mexican theme songs and went to a lot of more poppy Broadway tunes. Priscilla, one of the songs on this, was actually a uh, theme song for a TV game show called The Face is Familiar. And So What's New, another track off the album, also was a uh, popular TV theme song. So that's what I got for my music selection. The legendary Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass asking you the question, are you down with TJB? Yeah, you know me. <laughs> I like how like the two weeks that surrounded you had these <laughs> fucking enormous historical albums and you got that one in the middle. I love how this game works. <laughs> but I own Herb Alpert, man. Matter of fact... I own two of them. Before I before I forget this, I'm going to go back to to the to the seventies as well. But, but but this one here with Herb Alpert, you know, there's a lot to be said for that guy because one of the most successful record companies in the planet, A and M Records. That A is for Alpert, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and he's no dummy. For a guy that can blow the horn, he did pretty damn good for himself. And he's still around, and he's still and he's still doing good stuff. A and M Records was a great great record company because it was run by a musician you know and he knew what they right. and he knew how to do it so i give him credit for that and it was also a really nice compound too really cool place yeah and i'm glad you brought that up because the interesting thing you can see about this album cover if you look it up what now my love by herb alper mm -hmm. and the tijuana brass he had a long running tradition of having beautiful women, women on the cover on his yeah. cover this was the last album to feature a beautiful woman on the cover yep. and it happens to be the wife of AM Records partner Jerry Moss. This is Sandra Moss on the cover. Yeah. So you talk about the A and A and M being Alpert. <laughs> Remember the legendary cover with the girl in the whipped cream? Yes. That's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> and before I forget, let me go, let me go back uh, let me go back to the uh, 70s as well. You know, you were talking about Barracuda. Uh it's interesting because the record business used to be so payola oriented and it was and it was so scandalous and there was so much crap going on it was really difficult for musicians to control their own destinies you know they were really like owned there was like it was almost like baseball before the free agency type of thing and one of the things i was always most proud of i had a little record court career in 71 and 72 as a pop you know as a pop icon uh replacing bobby sherman at metro media records the problem was i couldn't sing and i told him that up front i like to consider myself the original munster manili <laughs> <laughs> So Millie had nothing on me. I was doing it long before him. And then when we did Eddie and the Monsters in 1983, um, I actually upped it a gear. I wrote the lyrics, but I faked the bass and I faked singing. But we were the first unsigned act ever to be on MTV. So Paola was alive and well in 1982 
but yet we recorded a song and BSed our way up the tower of MTV and they aired whatever happened to Eddie without a record deal. So that was kind of how the record, referring back to the Barracuda thing with the crazy ownership of the, of the artist and getting away with all kinds of crap. So thought I'd throw that in before I forgot. Man, that's nice. good stuff. Coming full circle. All right. I'm really interested to hear what our music expert, Drew Zachman, has <laughs> For the music round. Yeah, so I, I ran into that same issue when I was on last month. Uh, I had April. I forget what week it was, but it was like mid-April of 94. Like, surrounding the week that I had, I had Smashed by the Offspring, Throwing Copper from Live, Live Through This from Hole, Park Life from Blur. Not my week at all. And I had to go with Katie Seagal's album. I'm like, are you got to be kidding me with this horse shit? <laughs> um, Anyway, May 14th, 1982, I'm going with a release from a small band called The Clash. It was their fifth studio album called Combat Rock. Mm-hmm. Peaked at number seven in the U.S., spent uh, just about 61 weeks on the charts. And that album cranked out The Clash's two most popular tunes, uh, first of which is Should I Stay or Should I Go? which has over... the Casbah. Exactly. Um, and they're, they're both popular on Spotify. Uh, should I stay or should I go? Let me see here. Carry the seven has over 430 million plays on Spotify. Uh, and then as, uh, you mentioned there, Butch rock the Casbah has over 148 million plays on the aforementioned Spotify. Um, and this is also the last clash album featuring their classic lineup. Uh, this went two times platinum in the U S and, and the reason why I went with this album and it was due to the, to the Clash's influence and legacy. Uh, Rolling Stone ranked them 28th on their list of 100 greatest artists of all time, while VH1 had them ranked 22nd on a list of the same. And they influenced other bands such as Rancid, No Effects, Green Day, Rise Against, even Chuck D from Public Enemy uh, has credited the Clash as an inspiration, uh, namely the politically and socially conscious lyrics. And another element of influence was how the clash embraced their other styles of music like Jamaican music, which went on to inspire bands like bad brains, massive attack, sublime, no doubt. And one of my personal favorites, three eleven. So a uh, very influential band and uh, the clash combat rock May 14th, 1982. All right, let's go down to butch Patrick for the music round. Well, I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the winner, but I'm also going to say a little, a little bit of something else after that. Uh, this is easy peasy for me, and I'll tell you why. Um, Rockin' the Casbah, uh, Combat Rocket itself, that's the winner, the clash. But the reason why for me was I loved when MTV came on the air. The videos were easy. They, were, they weren't overproduced. They weren't all CG. You could actually enjoy the music, and they would intercut it with some cool little driving, you know, the armadillo running across the road and the sheik driving the Cadillac. That period of MTV, in my opinion, was the best. The early, the earlier years when they could really do cool videos. You know, MTV was only on about a year before it wasn't 24 hours of music. It went to, you know, commercials and pre-production stuff, and it, it became mainstream really quickly, unfortunately. But um, what I, what I want to say is, I was lucky enough. My my ultimate music story. If you're a music fan, you'll love this. Continental Hyatt House, 1972, Sunset Strip. That's where everybody was hanging. It was, the, it was the place to be if you were on the strip. Well, at the Whiskey A Go-Go, I'm flying back. Brian Sugarman, who was a writer for Rolling Stone Magazine, who actually um, was the guy that kind of they based the, um, the movie Almost Famous on. And he was the manager of the doors. So we, he befriended me, and he invited me up to go to the Continental Hyatt House. And lo and behold, as we're leaving, we're going to go and see Iggy Pop at the Whiskey. 
I had never exactly. seen Iggy Pop, heard about him, never seen him. Well, lo and behold, I had a 69 Mark III Lincoln, just like the car. Okay. <laughs> but you got a driver. What kind of an 18-year-old <laughs> kid drives around in a, in a 69 Mark III Lincoln? Oh, I do. So when we get downstairs, Iggy's limo is nowhere to be found. So I volunteer. And Iggy jumps in the back of my car, and off we go to the Whiskey A Go Go with Iggy in tow. Oh, my God. Craziest two miles of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say this. By the time we got there, I knew everything about Iggy. <laughs> and then I went in and saw the show, and I couldn't believe it. I go, this guy is an incredible piece of work. I don't understand it, but, man, is he good at what he does. And that's my Iggy Pop, that's my Iggy Pop story. Yeah, that's he awesome. had like a good wow. – and then he was gone for about five years, came back yep. in 77 with Bowie, helped him out, did the album, and he yep. cleaned himself up. But that yep. was like his heyday where he, yeah, was, he was He was doing crazy. shit in the back of my car that I wasn't too happy about. <laughs> I bet. I bet. <laughs> but Man, anyway, that's that, wild. Was, that was my, uh, it was really, fun. everybody should be like a rock star, even if you have no talent. Everybody be, should be uh, shuttled around for a year with A&R money from Metro Media Records. <laughs> all right so for a score update drew zachman takes the lead three to one but don't worry it's still anyone's game heading into the final two-point round drew do you have control of the board so you get to decide if you want to go first or defer over to one of us i'll just go i'll kick it off similar right. to uh hot products i believe i had a little bit of an issue trying to find some kind of actual hot product but this product <laughs> i kid you not it doesn't get more or doesn't get any hotter than this product that I will tell you about right now. And what's what's hotter uh, than a bunch of well-dressed musicians on a yacht singing about their love for America? <laughs> and I am talking about Duran Duran's release of Rio. That's right. May 10th, 1982 was the release of Rio and included smash singles such as Hungry Like the Wolf, Save a Prayer, and Rio. And uh, this album personally has one of my favorite songs of theirs, The Chauffeur, which was also covered by the Deftones. And while both versions are great and flawless in their own right, I think personally I, I the, the Deftones absolutely nailed that cover. Uh, maybe even a little bit better than the original, but both versions are flawless. Uh, the album went two times platinum in the U.S., Hungry Like the Wolf is Duran Duran's most listened to song on Spotify, having over 160 million streams. Uh, the album peaked at number six on the Billboard 200 and was on the chart for 129 weeks. And I'll tell you what, guys, if that's not a hot product, I don't know what is. That's more of a music round. Good but looking guy. That's a hot girl. product. It's a product and it was hot. That yeah, means you Simon couldn't find Luke. anything else. Is what happened. That has nothing to do with that. I this was the hottest thing that actually had dates attached to it that I could find. Come on. We know the truth. <laughs> I scoured the internet for hours. Well, you know, early on MTV, and that's one of those videos of the early days of MTV yeah. when it came on the air, it's sort of like killed the non-pretty people that can play music if you weren't pretty you weren't going to be on mtv <laughs> and a lot of the fortunate people like christopher cross and a lot of other people you know their careers didn't do so well because they didn't they weren't pretty people and it's true mtv was a beautiful the beautiful folks and the the, the simon lebon and his brother were a perfect example of uh the the pretty videos yeah all right so i'll go next for the final round hot products 
We're going to go back to newspapers.com to the Raleigh Register in Beckley, West Virginia on May 11th, 1966, where I find an article that talks about one of the biggest hot products and current crazes going. And the headline reads by Leroy Pope, Merchants get a big profit from the Batman craze. The, the Batman television show may smell like a ripe corn or parboiled tripe to the critics, but to merchandisers at the Woolworth store, it is the fragrant odor of green money. Batman t-shirts, capes, masks, hats, and other soft goods bearing the Batman trademark will probably rack up in retail sales close to $80 million this year. That would top the $50 million from James Bond, and if it lasts long enough, the Batman merchandise fever could approach sales of the Davy Crockett coonskin cap. <laughs> the article right. goes on to talk about all the other hot products that are offered, such as uh, puppets, flashlights, pendants, bubblegum, trading cards, oh yeah, comic books, oil paint-by-number sets, periscopes, even walkie-talkies. And, of course, you can't be without Batman peanut butter. That makes sense. So yeah, that's my hot product, The Surge, in May of 1966, of Batman products. Did you say Periscope? Like, periscope. Like, 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 like Periscope, Periscope. Yeah. yeah, like a Periscope with the Batman right. logo on it. Why not? Okay. I'm just, I just wanted to double <laughs> Never know when you're going to be at a golf tournament and you can't see over the guy in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Man Crush, over to you. What do you have for hot products? All right, so I actually have a hot product that was released on a date and it came out not like Mark's broad sense of Batman products from an entire decade and Drew pulling music again. Duran Duran was hot. For another album. Mine is music, but I went a different way. So I wanted to go outside the box. This one is May 8th, 1977. All the typical items that we look for, I couldn't find for this week. You know, like video games, comics, whatever. Could not find them. So I thought about something that I've been looking forward to this summer, and that's concerts. And aside from baseball, I feel like concerts are like a staple of summers in America. So I started to scour newspapers.com. Again, like Mark said before, that's what we always use. And I started looking for really popular summer tickets that were going on sale. And I had a few options to choose from, but there was nothing that really seemed like a big enough concert. And I had all but given up looking at this point. And then I stumbled upon an article that was talking about a sold-out show up in Ithaca, New York, that Sunday at 8 p.m., a show that only costs roughly $6.50 for a ticket, which is about $28 today in 2020. Picture paying $28 to see your favorite band. I don't even think I paid 28 bucks. That's amazing. In the 90s. That is insane. That 28 bucks is like parking now. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Um, but let me get into this though. But before a maximum capacity crowd of roughly 9,000 fans inside Cornell's Barton Hall in their only upstate appearance that tour, the Grateful Dead came on stage and mixed tunes from their latest album, Terrapin Station. And I know Mark's laughing because Mark's a huge <laughs> Grateful Dead fan. And they went on, they did the rest of the catalog. They did a tribute for Mother's Day doing Mama Tried. It's just, it sounds like another insane sold out Grateful Dead show. And that alone would have been a hot product. But let's dig a little bit deeper. And that's what I did here. Because little did I know, because I'm not a huge Grateful Dead fan. If you were to ask a deadhead, 
What's their favorite dead concert of all time? Most would tell you what, Mark? Cornell 77. Cornell 77. And I, I didn't talk to Mark about this beforehand. This is what. No, I had no clue. Yeah. All <laughs> these people, like, they're like, oh, Cornell 77, best Grateful Dead show of all time. It had a fucking book written about it that was just released yeah. in 2017 called Cornell 77, The Music, The Myth, and The Magnificence of the Grateful Dead's Concert at Barton Hall by Peter Connors in 2017. So that shit must be true. So, Mark, explain the importance of this show and the whole, like, Miss Betty Cantor Jackson and that whole thing. Yeah, well, see, the thing with this show is it was musically so perfect, so spot on, so well executed. But see, with the Grateful Dead, all of the shows throughout history of the dead have all been recorded by fans or by people in the band. Betty Cantor, one of the dead's most loyal and best archivists, had taped this show, but her tapes had been lost. So it was rare to find a recording of this such great show. Years and years later, finally those tapes resurfaced from, of all things, a storage auction, and they found the master tape reels from Betty. This album has been remastered and re-released, but you can go out and listen to it now. It is an absolutely stellar show. You're 100% right on that, Man Crush. It's on Spotify, matter of fact. They released this in 2017. Uh, five LPs, three CDs. It was remastered, the whole thing, like Mark said. And matter of fact, in 2011, it was put in the Library of Congress. So it's pretty freaking huge. It's a hot, that's a hot ticket, man. <laughs> 650. You could have gotten that, been part of this epic event. But that is my hot product. May 8th, All right. 1977, have Barton you, Hall. Have you guys got your computers in front of you? Yeah. Yeah. Google, Google right now, Butch Patrick's Grateful Dead bus. Oh, no. It's, I bought a Grateful Dead bus, a 65 and a half Gillig Brothers bus about 20 years ago that was used from 66 to 87 by the sound techs who basically drove. It was, it was called the ambulance. It was red, white, and blue. Yeah. Of course it was filled. The ceiling was covered with posters of the period. It was, it was, it was basically like walking back in time to hate Ashbury in 1967. Um, I was selling my RV at the time and I went to pick up the RV trader to look at my ad and this bus was on the cover, had a San Francisco phone number. I'm in Los Angeles. So I figured out ah, what the hell, Turns out the guy from Frisco had driven it down to Bellflower, which was about six miles from where I was. So I went over and saw this bus, gave him $100. Don't sell this bus. Went to $10,000 grand for it. Didn't have the money. I was trying to sell my motorhome. Motorhome didn't sell. But I got, I gave him $1,000 next week, and I paid him another nine grand by the end of the month. And I owned the Grateful Dead tour bus for about 17 years. Oh, wow. This wow. thing. <laughs> I had more fun. I had more fun. And here's the, here's the sad part. It was a Soundtex bus, and with the bus, I got a briefcase that had Jerry Garcia's personal uh, log in it, and the logbook with all the signatures of all the people that had been in, been often on the bus, and I had a box of cassette tapes that they had recorded at concerts from about 12 years every concert. I gave them to a guy to go have him digitized, and I never got him back. Oh, no. And then I wound up selling the bus. Uh, the engine blew up. I replaced the engine, and I sold it to a museum up in uh, Illinois, Volo Museum, who then sold it to the guy from Gas Monkey, and the Gas Monkey guy then sold it to a guy who's got a bar down in Dallas called Strokers. So if you're ever in the Dallas area, if you want to see my bus, he's turned it into an indoor VIP drinking um, bar inside his building. But um, it was such a cool experience because 
I was driving around in this bus that was a, it was like a time portal for the Grateful Dead that for is, years yeah, and wild. years and years. It was un, it was I mean people used to just come up to it and I, one time I one time I rented it out to a bunch of guys from Disney and I drove them up and down Sunset Strip. I go so what do you think? They go let me tell you something. I've been in this bus for about three hours and I haven't looked out the window once. I've been just staring at the ceiling, imagining what was that went on in this bus. And what it was is the Soundtex owned it. What would happen is they would supply, they would ship all the, the contraband in the bus. When they would get to the concert, the Hells Angels would then unload the bus, get rid of the contraband, set up security perimeters, and then the Soundtex would do their thing. And then after the bus was cleaned out, that would be the VIP party area. So, <laughs> and I call and I read, and I named the bus. I I christened the bus Sugar Magnolia. I I put a paint. I I had it. I had it inscribed. Called the Sugar Magnolia, which is my favorite Dead song. And believe it or not, I've never been to a Dead concert. Wow! <laughs> you could just listen to the music in your bus. It's like you're listening to the music concert. in the bus. That's right. And it was the most amazing. I don't know if it, did it come up on. Uh, did you Google? Yeah, it? I did. It? That thing looks oh, yeah, awesome. Yeah. I saw the inside pictures too with the all yeah. the posters on the wall. It's amazing. So anyway, obviously the answer, the winner is Man Crush. Yeah, baby. But here's here's the only <laughs> problem that we we just started doing this triple threat, this new format of the show. Now we tied. Drew and I are tied. Oh, okay. So we're tied at three apiece. How do we want to break this tie, Drew? Shootout. <laughs> Bang! You're dead. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking like NHL shootout, but yeah, we could. Uh... How about this? Let's let's do let's do a simple one. Everybody, the, I'll pick the best first concert. All right, because I got one. I'm going to share anyway. I set the bar pretty damn high as a kid. Let's see what you guys did. All right, you can go first, Drew. Yeah, so my uh, we were talking about Christopher Cross. Um, so my first concert that I went to was a Beach Boys uh, concert. We took my dad there for his birthday. It's probably like mid '90s, I think it was, and. Um, Christopher Cross is opening and at the time I didn't know who Christopher Cross was. So I see the name I'm like, "Wait a minute, is that Criss Cross like the like yes, the rapper yes. Criss Cross?" <laughs> yeah. Boy, I could not have been more off. Yeah, this one doesn't jump. He just goes sailing. Yeah, Criss Cross so like, you know, it's like young like these like two rappers, Christopher Cross is like this old like middle-aged like white dude. And what was funny was uh he was talking uh he, right before he's about to play the song Sailing and he was like a lot of you are probably in the crowd tonight. You're probably here because of this song. And then he started playing sailing and I'm like, Oh, that's funny. And then like a little while later, I like started doing the math and I was like, son of a bitch. Am I? So, uh, I might've found out the song that I may or may not have been conceived to that night. Oh. So, um, oh, wow. It was potentially sailing by Christopher cross. So, but yeah, the, the, the beach boys were the headliner though. Beach boys. All right, man crush. What was your first concert? All right, mine was uh, Aerosmith, the Get a Grip tour. Uh, that was I actually won the tickets on a radio <laughs> station, and I wasn't old enough to get them, so my brother in law had to go and pick them up, and uh, he took me up there. It was at uh, Montage Mountain in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. Okay, both good. Um, my first concert, I was fourteen years old, in in uh, wasn't even in high school yet. And my stepdad was a pro ball player, and he was friends with Jerry West. And this guy was playing at the forum named Jimi Hendrix. Oh, no shit. And I, got, and I got six tickets with senator seats, which were the seats that were above the tunnel when you walk out. So you had the little waitress that would come up and take your orders and shit. So me and my friend, I'm 14, he's 13. 
we got a bunch of girls from high school to take us. <laughs> <laughs> so I got four girls that were like 17, 18 years old to take these two little whippersnappers to go see Jimi <laughs> Hendrix. Wow. Very nice. Dude, Butch Patrick, you win this game. Congratulations. No, yeah. no, no, no. The winner the, the winner's gonna the winner's gonna be uh the, uh, the, the beach boy. I actually live in Hawthorne, and so let's go with Beach Boys. Drew Zachman, you win the game. Finally. <laughs> his first hey! ever. I think that is your is six your months in the running. No, no, no. You won I, one I, I think I won once before, but it was it, that was like, like my first shows I'd been on, and that was like in the fall time. Oh, man. For fuck's sake. Wow. Well, congratulations. Hey, there thanks, you go, guys. Butch, thank you very much. I appreciate it. No fun. It was fun. A lot of lot of lot of good memories. And sometimes I, if you live long enough, you, you get to see a lot of stuff. Yeah, no shit. And your memory is like spot on. Spot on. Man. Yeah. You saw Jimmy. That's awesome. How man, yeah. I would love to see, man. I yeah, he was, uh, he was. He was. It was. It was. Uh, like I say, it's and my first. I'll tell you another one. My first date. I like to say was Marilyn Munster. The first Marilyn took me to go see uh, Mary Poppins at Grumman's Chinese Theater. So. I like to say wow. my first date was with a hot blonde star. You've done pretty well. You've done pretty well. Hey, Butch, do you want to plug yeah. your show and all that stuff before you get out of here? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, um, two things. Number one, I got my coach to coast spelled with a K, K-O-A-C-H, like Munster Coach, to K-O-A-S-T, which is my YouTube channel that follows my travels around the country with my uh, Munster traveling road show. I have a 34-foot trailer when the car comes out. Uh, the entry is the, where the car is in the front 14 feet is a five puzzle, two room escape room called 1313 Mockingbird Maze. Um, I've actually structured it, uh, usually has four people going through it. Now I'm only putting two people through it for the social distancing. So I basically have a layout. So when I go on the road, I can actually, uh, set up shop and uh, fall within the medical and CDC, you know, uh, guidelines, stay safe, all that kind of stuff. And um, um, I'm working on a couple new things as well. But right now, uh, I'm going to be moving to Nashville, Music City, or Nash Vegas, as it likes to be called these days. <laughs> and um, I'm working with a gentleman that was Johnny Cash's best friend and manager, and uh, a guy named Bill Miller from California opened up the Johnny Cash Museum, and he's been buying up properties. And we're going to open up a Munster brick-and-mortar haunted attraction, uh, escape room, and a place to shoot a TV show called Macabre Theater out of there with um, Nashville talent guest stars. That's awesome. That is great. Yeah, be fun. That's, I was actually supposed to go there this month, but of course that's Nashville. Not. Yep. Have you ever been yeah. there? No. Well, I have when no, no, I was a kid, are. but not as an great adult. Town. Yeah. Great town. I'll have to reschedule that one. Maybe you'll be open by then. I hope so. If not, still go and make, make sure you check out the Johnny Cash Museum. Definitely will. But thank okay, you. My friends. Thank you so much for coming on, man. That was thank a lot you. of fun. Bye-bye. Take care, man. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Appreciate it. All right. Well, on that note, Duelers, we're going to end this episode right here. But don't worry. If you've missed an episode, you can always head over to DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank the winner for tonight, Mr. Drew Zachman, who comes in here with 1982 and absolutely crushes it. Why don't you tell everybody what's going on on the One Headlight 90s podcast? Yeah, uh, we've been kind of, uh, I think like a lot of people have been kind of busy, you know, being shut down at home and stuff. And with two young kids, it's been a little bit tricky to uh, do your job, run a daycare, and uh, also try to run a podcast. So I, I, things have gone a little bit smoother, so we're uh, 
starting to get some content out there. And one thing I'm going to be doing. So when is this this episode's coming out on what Thursday, right? Wednesday. Okay. So yeah. So when this episode airs, then uh, I will have. We're doing a uh, about a month ago. I did a like a March Madness bracket about the best '90s music albums. We're doing another one, but it's going to be about '90s fads. So I'll have a, uh, a the bracket out for people to sign up. It's free. Just you know, sign up to the podcast. That's all I got to do, and uh, you'll be eligible for a prize at the end, which I'm still trying to figure out. But we're doing uh, '90s fads, and uh, we'll actually have an episode out. Uh, if not tomorrow, it'll be out Wednesday then. And uh, yeah, and then right after that, we have an episode on Pearl Jam coming up. So, and I'm also trying to book my. Uh, my oldest daughter, Abigail, she's she's tough to get a hold of to uh, to come on the show, but we're, we might talk about Aladdin, so we'll uh, we'll have that episode up too. But that's what we have going on over there. Nice. Make sure to check those out, Duelers. So until next time, we're gonna bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.